0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Second Peter. We're getting near the end of chapter 1. We're going to be in verses uh, 16 to 18 today. I'm going to go ahead and read through Second Peter 1. I'll start in verse 12 and read through to the end of the chapter. We'll get into the context a little bit more of the book, uh, but one of the things that the, uh, uh, it's one of the struggles the, these churches, most likely churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and we're struggling with was the influence of false teachers uh, who are promising a, a life of pursuing your own pleasure. So we're going to see that Peter is turning his attention towards that in these verses. First, he starts off with reminding them, though. First, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. People love imagining what it would be like to live without limitations, to live without constraints. Now maybe it's just because we have young kids, a, a, a fun dinnertime conversation is, if you were a superhero What kind of superhero abilities would you have? And I don't know if you've ever had that conversation with your family. And really what that is is an exercise in imagining what would it be like to live without limitations, without constraints. Maybe it's the constraint of gravity. You'd like the ability to fly. Or the constraint of time. You wish you could time travel or stop time or go back in time. The constraint of basic physics, being able to run faster or be stronger than your actual muscles can do. Constraint of light, because you wish you could be invisible. It's fun to imagine what what, what it would be like if there was freedom from, from some of these natural consequences of being seen, of having bullets bounce off you, of leaping buildings in single bounds. Well, the false teachers of Peter's day longed to live life without constraint, without limitations, without consequences. See, they professed to be believers of Jesus Christ, but in reality, they followed their lust. And if you want to read more about them, you can read about them in Second Peter 2. They were confident that this life was all there is. So really, they'd taken off a constraint of, the afterlife it seems, and taking off the constraint of Jesus's return. They didn't really believe Jesus was coming back. They lived that after conversion, they wouldn't be held accountable for anything that they did. They lived without restriction, freedom. And we're we're gonna see that Peter is gonna teach them that Christ is returning. I think in our church, we have a different problem than believing that Christ is going to return. Now there may be some of you here this morning that this is new for, uh, who don't really believe that Jesus has resurrected, has ascended to heaven, and is going to come back in power. But most of you do, and at the very least, you 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 are intellectually con- convinced that Jesus is going to return. That doesn't mean we don't need to be r- reminded. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, need to uh, bring that fact to bear upon the way that we live, but we're convinced by it. Instead, I think our struggle is is different. We struggle believing deep down that he has expectations for us, that Jesus will judge us. we're going to look at Versus later. In fact, if you see in your notes there, uh, I've, 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 done, I've done something a little different. I know sometimes I use a lot of cross references, and sometimes I use so many that it can be tough to keep track with them if you're taking notes. So I've put them there, and it also give, gives me the freedom if I skip. Uh, if I skip some of them, and which I may, depending on, on how time goes, you, you, you can always go back to them later. So instead of trying to write down all those cross-references and where you can find those in the Bible as quickly as possible, I put them in the notes for you. Anyways, we're going to look at some of those uh, uh, notes that talk about Jesus returning t- to judge. Perhaps we expect him to welcome to have a warm welcome, and that is what we talked about last week from 2 Peter, or, or, or two weeks ago from 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Anyone who has a confession of saving faith, anyone who can sign on the dotted line their name, wretch saved by grace through faith, that as long as you confess, well, I need a Savior and Jesus is that Savior, I've got no other hope, that you don't really need to be concerned about Jesus' return. You don't need to really be concerned about judgment because you have saving faith. But we are in danger of really failing to understand something that Peter's been working hard to convince us of. That the existence of new life is evidenced by obedience. Not perfect obedience, not 100% obedience, but true obedience, dependent obedience for the purpose of pleasing God obedience. It brings us back to what we've seen in 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11, how Peter tells them they can be certain that God has chosen them, that they can know his calling and election. By, as they practice these things, the qualities of verses 5 through 7, you will never stumble. For in this way, through this path of obedience, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. To you. He's not talking about how they get salvation from God, but the evidence of being saved by God. Jesus welcomes those into his presence who have made a practice of obedience. Jesus evaluates the quality of our confession by the presence of our obedience. Again, this is not how we become right with God. We're only right with God. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, But then we demonstrate that through our obedience. We must live differently if we believe Jesus is coming in power. If you believe Jesus is coming in power, if Jesus is returning, you have to live differently. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, at least begin looking at 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18. Peter testifies to the truth of Christ's coming in power so that we'll be convinced and live obediently. He testifies to the truth of Christ's coming in power so that we will be convinced, I would say that we probably are, but then that we will live obediently. We're going to see kind of two lines of evidence he brings this week, convinced by what the apostles saw and convinced by what they heard. And next time we're going to look at being convinced through what the prophets say. So let's look first at, be convinced, and this is in your your notes, and if not, you can just grab one of those. Be convinced of Jesus' powerful return by the apostles' testimony of what they saw. So we need to be convinced of Jesus' powerful return by the apostles' testimony of what they saw with their own eyes. And this is where we go in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 and 17. Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and really the worship team set us up in such a great way with singing that, that, that glorious majesty song, which I don't know the title of, but what a fantastic way. I mean, if, you, if there's a song you're going to be singing the rest of this week, play that one a hundred times, so that was so fitting with this message peter continues verse 17 for when he received honor and glory from god the father okay so let's look first at that we for for we did not follow cleverly devised tales and that we i believe refers to the apostles and it's not that the apostles had firsthand brought the good news of jesus christ to these christians that peter's writing to there's peter may have been there and john may have been there but there's no evidence that peter or john ever went there firsthand But the gospel that was proclaimed to them came from the apostles' testimony. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you. That word, made known, it's often used in scripture to reveal a divine truth. It's a a weighty word, like I have something important to give to you. I'm going to make this known to you. And whether that making known was done by the apostles in person or through those who have heard that message and passed it on, really we are all still involved in that gospel ministry, making it known to others. And he says what they made known was the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that those two words, their power and coming, it's, it's not like we need to separate those as two different ideas it's 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 one idea, the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word coming becomes the go-to word in the Greek New, New, New Testament of Uh, the original language. And it became the go-to word that they would use to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back in power and in judgment, it was used, uh, it was the word that showed that a king has arrived or that one of the Greek gods had arrived. Well, when the New Testament writers are describing the arrival of Jesus Christ, they use the same word. I'm gonna go through some verses here that describe this. And and for me personally, uh, and and I know we're all different, I become more convinced of something when I read it in multiple places in Scripture. Now, I wanna be careful because I don't want that to overflow too much into our time together. But after I read it a few times, I'm like, this is really gonna happen. This is just not taught one place in Scripture, which would still be true. This is taught many times. And so scripture is full of talking about uh, Jesus Christ coming in power. And this is what we we believe, we know is going to happen. In Matthew 24, verse 30, it says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky on this earth, in our timeline." In our history, this is going to happen. And then all the tribes of the earth, all the nations will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And there, uh, 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 Jesus is quoting from Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. It's one of the, really the most important text of the New Testament, talking about the Son of Man coming and being given glory. So that's just one verse, Matthew twenty four thirty. Here's another. Matthew 16, 27 For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That will happen. Jesus will come in glory and repay every man according to his deeds. Now, for some of you, that might strike fear. He's coming to repay my deeds? That quote there is from Psalm 62, verse 12, and I'm going to read it. And it says, and loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Your covenant-keeping love, your your promise-keeping love is yours, O God, for you recompense a man according to his works. When we live obediently, When our faith in Christ has has evidenced itself in obedience, we can look forward to Jesus' repaying us according to his deeds. It's good news, his return. We can look forward to him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That is going to happen on this earth. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, punishment, judgment to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel is the good news. It is the good news that if you are not right with God this morning, if you are going to be punished for your sins, that you can put your hope in Jesus Christ and be saved, that you can pass from death to life, that you can be reconciled to God. You can obey that gospel this morning. You can go to him and say, Lord, I need that salvation. But those who do not obey the gospel will have retribution dealt out to them. Verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 1. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. And that is what we are. We are those who have believed in Jesus Christ who are gonna marvel at Christ at his return. This is this powerful coming of Jesus Christ, this power and coming that Peter's writing about. See, Jesus returning, God the Son become man, returning to this earth as a judge, is inseparable from the preaching of the New Testament. A lot of times we talk a lot about how to be saved. But a full gospel has the fact that Jesus comes to judge. Acts 10, verses 42 to 43. This is Peter uh, telling uh, the uh, gospel message to Cornelius. He ordered us, this this is the same Peter, to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And that's the gospel there. Jesus is coming back to judge, but you can be forgiven. Acts 17, verses 30 to 31, we see Paul doing the same thing. Therefore, having overlooked the times of, of, of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And why should everyone repent? Not just in this room, but all throughout Orange County, all throughout Southern California. Why should every man repent? Because God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. His, his judgment's gonna be perfect through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And that man is Jesus Christ. And this is part of what that gospel message is. This is what Peter testified to. This is true. This is Jesus in his powerful coming. Now, Peter says, in the beginning of verse 16 of 2 Peter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word tales there in Greek is the word we get our word myth from. These, these, he said, I didn't, we didn't follow fabricated stories and a commentator writes that Jewish authors used this word mythos with the meaning to depict pagan fictions about the creation of the world and the behavior of the gods, all of those religious stories. Maybe you have a religious background full of religious stories, these, these myths. Peter says that the apostles didn't follow fiction. They didn't submit to stories. They didn't obey tales. The apostles were not captivated by cleverly devised tales. There's not someone sitting in a dark room thinking, hey, how can we profit about this? Let's make a really great story. And then the apostles come by and say, oh, well, sure, I'll obey that. I'll follow that. No. And we're going to see that they were eyewitness. They were eyewitnesses. The, Peter says, we weren't dupes. We weren't deceived. We're not fools. People are quick to submit themselves to all kinds of cleverly devised tales. In our world, they're not so much about, uh, uh, they're they're, they're not so much religious tales. They're tales about how someone can get rich quick. Or maybe cleverly devised tales about how someone can get healthy quick. If you buy this, you can become healthy. If you give me so much money, You can get rich. These are cleverly devised tales. The return of Jesus Christ in power is not a cleverly devised tale. The apostles were not retelling ghost stories around a campfire. Well, how do the apostles know this? How do they know that Jesus is coming in power? And he says in verse 16 at the end, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There's that, it begins that phrase there with, but it's a contrast. Instead of these these made-up stories, we saw his majesty. And the apostles testify here, Peter does, to what they saw and heard. And that's a common theme in scripture. Acts 4.20, Peter says, We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 22 Verse 15, Paul is told, you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. 1 John 1, verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In verse 3 of 1 John 1, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. A commentator writes, seeing and hearing are what true witnesses of an event have experienced, right? A true witness has seen. A true witness has heard. And he goes on to write, this is the type of testimony that one expects from a credible witness, whether in a court or elsewhere. If you want to know if someone's speaking the truth, you listen to what they saw. You listen to what they heard. Well, the apostles saw Jesus in his majesty in his greatness, in his magnificence. And this word here is the magnificence ascribed to a God, whether that's a true God of the Bible or whether they use this word to ascribe magnificence to one of their idols. The apostles saw Jesus in his magnificence, really pointing to their conviction of him being God. Well, perhaps you're wondering, well, when did the disciples see Jesus's majesty? I mean, because he's saying that they know he's coming in power. They were eyewitnesses of this. Well, when did they see this majesty? Did they time travel to the end of time to see his majesty? Well, Peter in verse 17 describes when they saw his majesty. And it's an event that is recorded in three of the Gospels. And and, and those verses are there for you. It's in Mark 8, verses 31, to 9, verse 8. It's in Luke 9. It's also in Matthew 16, going going into 17. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Turn to Matthew 16. And we'll follow along. Because this is what Peter is referring to when he says he saw Jesus' majesty. This is why he knows that Christ is returning in power. As we kind of build the scene in verses 21 to 23 of Matthew 16, Jesus foretells his death. He announces to the disciples that he's going to be killed, that he's going to be raised from the dead. In verses 24 to, to, to 26, after giving this hard news that, of what Jesus was going to suffer, he tells them, if you are going to follow me, you have to be willing to suffer too. In fact, you're going to have to say no to yourself. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to lose your life if you're going to save it. Then in verse 27, Jesus says, For the Son of Man, referring to himself, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. And we already looked at at that verse. This is exactly what the false teachers questioned. They would say, no, Jesus is not coming back. And no, he's not going to repay people for their deeds. We see that in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. And, you, and, and just stay there, there, there in Matthew 16 and 17. I'll read it to you. Peter describes what this false teaching in the church was. Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Jesus isn't coming back. So let's just do what we want. Is what we see them the false teachers do in 2 Peter 2 and what now they tell why they're willing. Jesus isn't coming back. Well, Jesus says, the son of man is coming back and he will repay man according to his deeds. But don't stop there in Matthew 16. It goes on to verse 28, what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here, some of my disciples right here, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, that's what Peter's writing about. Jesus tells him, some of you are going to see me coming in my kingdom before you die. Yet we're all saying this is something that hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for Jesus' second coming. So let's... Follow along. And what, and what follows in Matthew 17 is known as the transfiguration or the, the, tran, the transformation of Christ. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, the same Peter who wrote 2 Peter, and James and John his brother, these three men, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his Jesus's face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light and behold Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Peter said to Jesus Lord it is good for us to be here if you wish I'll make you three tabernacles here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking a bright cloud overshadowed them And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This, this, not Moses, not Elijah, this is my beloved son Jesus, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples heard this. They fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself, himself alone. Verse 2 of this Matthew 17 describes what Peter saw. He saw Jesus changed. He saw his face shining like the sun, his garments becoming white. Mark says that that, that they were whiter than any bleach can make anything. Now we can go back to 2 Peter. This is what Peter's referring to when at the end of verse 16 he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is where Peter saw Jesus's majesty. He was an eyewitness. He knows what Jesus is going to be like when he returns, when he comes in his power. And Peter, Jesus's friend, one of his three best friends was terrified. Peter can testify to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing comparable. There's nothing comparable that that we can come up with. Something we know is going to happen. Like like you can watch a team practice on Saturday before a big game, right? But is there any guarantee that team is going to make the field on Sunday? I mean, it's likely, right? It's highly likely. But any number of things could stop Anyone on that team from making the field on Sunday, right? There's no guarantee there. You can see the bride and groom as they're waiting in the back rooms before their wedding, and the bride is in her beautiful dress, and the groom in her and then the groom in his suit. But there's no guarantee that they're going to to take their vows until they actually do, right? You don't really know what's going to happen yet. You're still waiting. Peter had no doubt. He had seen Christ in his majesty. He knew that Christ would come in his powerful return. We are to be convinced of Jesus' powerful return by the apostles' testimony of what they saw. We also are to be convinced of Jesus' powerful return by the apostles' testimony of what they heard. Verses 17 and 18. It says in verse 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Back in Matthew 17, and and really, and, and, and Peter quotes it here, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It describes Matthew 17 that a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, and that bright cloud testified to God's presence, that God was making himself known where the God who's everywhere and who's always present was allowing his presence to be seen in, in, in a visible manifestation, not of his nature, but of his glory. And that same kind of cloud in Exodus 40, verses 34 to 35 covered the tent of meeting the 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 tabernacle and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle and describes that moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle this is that same kind of scene here god's glory evidencing itself in such a way that that his holiness is obvious We saw the same thing in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. It happened, so this is the dedication of of the temple that Solomon built. It happened when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And that's what's happening on this high mountain, that God is manifesting his glory in a cloud the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are seeing it. And then they hear with their ears. An utterance was made to him by the majestic glory. And that's a way of, of speaking of, of God. And we, we, we see it in our Bibles There is written with, with, with capital letters. It's kind of a, 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 uh, uh, an, a, a, way, a way to honor God, a polite way of speaking of him a way to speak of God as the majestic glory. God reveals his presence in glory in scripture and we see that happening again and again in scripture. Acts 7 verse 2 talks about how the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Acts 7 verse 55 how Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. God manifests himself in this glory and then they hear what does Peter hear? So he's testified to what he's seen. Now he testifies to what he, to what he hears. Remember, both of these he's bringing as evidence that Jesus is going to return, that Jesus is going to have this powerful return. And the voice that evidences this, this, God's voice, and that, that's just incredible, God speaking and us hearing, Right? my daughters were telling me where sound comes from. Sound comes from friction, from, from, from things moving. Well, God is without body. And yet he's speaking in a voice, creating sound so that we can hear it, or at least so that Peter could hear it. And what does this voice say? This is my beloved son. And Jews would know where that, where, where that came from, from Psalm 2. If you have your Bible, you'll go ahead and turn to Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm, a psalm of the future Messiah. When we think about our Messiah, which is the word Christ, Jesus Christ, we think about being saved. But here we see judgment. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 9. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they've assembled, they take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh and his anointed, his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters, their chains apart and cast away their cords from us. We can overthrow this, this Messiah, the nations are saying. He who sits in the heavens laughs, Yahweh God, the creator laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And this is interesting because Peter refers to this as a holy mountain too. But there he's talking about Zion and Zion, my holy mountain. And, and God continues, I will sure, uh, the psalmist says, I, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. We know that this is not David saying this. This is the, the, uh, the, the psalmist speaking from the voice of the future Messiah saying, he said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And that's what this voice here from heaven says, you are my This is my beloved son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. It doesn't mean that that God the Father is saying, oh, I birthed you as a baby, Jesus. He goes on, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The whole earth from sea to sea on every continent, is going to belong to Jesus Christ. When the Father calls Jesus Son, this is not about Jesus' nature as the Son of God, as, as Him being eternal God, one of the three persons of the Trinity. This is about Jesus being crowned. This is about Jesus' being designated as heir of the universe. This is about the father saying, this throne belongs to you, son. You are my son. I'm the king. And now here's your throne. That's what Peter is referencing. And this is what God the father is referencing when he says, this is my beloved son. This is my son. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the king of the universe. I've made him king. Now he was king by nature as God the son. But now this is God the son become man who's crowned. Well, Peter doesn't stop there and God the father didn't stop there. This is my beloved son at the end of verse 17 with whom I am well pleased. That that also is a reference to an Old Testament text, Isaiah 42, verse 1. And if you know some things about Isaiah, you know that there's a whole series of prophecies about the servant. And that servant is a reference to to the Messiah who is coming, Jesus. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved one. I am well pleased with him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's going to accomplish something that is global. Isaiah 42, verse four, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Again, it's a picture and he calls him servant of this universal reign of the, the coming Christ. This is the same servant that we celebrate in Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, God says, I will allot my servant a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty, the the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. See, the servant in Isaiah is the one who takes the punishment of sinners. Christ will not only be the servant who suffers, as referenced by what God said out of the cloud, but also the son who is sovereign. Not only the sacrifice for sinners, but also the king who conquers. And with these two quotations from the Old Testament, God says, all of that, what I prophesied about this upcoming Messiah, takes place in this person who you just saw glorified in front of you. The one whose face is shining white, this is my son, this is my servant, this is your savior, this is your king. God is well pleased with Jesus, the servant's son. And the only time the father was displeased with with his son is when the son took the father's displeasure for our sins. Right? He pleased, the son pleased his father perfectly. And the father put the wrath that we deserved upon his son. And that's what happened when Christ died in the place of sinners. Peter continues. We ourselves, in verse 18, heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And, 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 and it's not referring to a previous holy mountain. He's just saying, what happened there? It was holy ground. Like, 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 like Moses took off his sandals because God was there at the burning bush. It's holy ground. This mountain was now holy ground. God had made his presence known. The sun has been glorified. And we've heard this voice. God revealed to the eyes and to the ears of these three apostles who Jesus is, who Jesus forever will be. The future is guaranteed. We can't pull apart God's eternally woven tapestry. There's no threads to pick at, this thing is not going to fall apart. The end is written. Only the Father knows the length of the story, right? We, we, we keep seeing this tapestry being, 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 being un, uh, unfurled, kind of unrolled, and it keeps going, it keeps going, and we're like, Jesus, when are you coming back in power? When are you making this earth right? When are you coming back with the rewards that you've promised? And we keep waiting, but we know what the end is going to be. You could turn back to Matthew 17, and we'll end by looking at this passage, because it really applies to what Peter was challenging the people he was writing, and it ends with a problem, it applies to the problem of the false prophets, and it's a challenge for us. We've already seen what verse 17, 17 says. I've quoted it several times. The Son of Man is going to come, Matthew 16, verse 27. Sorry, I think it's 17. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. We just saw the Son of Man. We know what it's going to look like. We saw his glory. We, in a sense, we've heard it through the apostles' ears. Well, look at the previous verses. Jesus said to his disciples in verse 24, Matthew 16, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. See, these false teachers who were infecting these these churches in Asia Minor who were denying the return of Christ, they were not willing to deny themselves. They weren't willing to lose their lives. They wanted all the pleasure that this world had to offer. They had an insatiable appetite, and they were going for more and more and more. And they were teaching others to follow them, they wouldn't submit to constraints. They, they wouldn't accept limitations because what they thought was that God has done away with the consequences. Jesus isn't returning and there's not going to be any judgment. Well, what about you? The only way to escape God's limitations, God's requirements, God's constraints... God's good commands is to deny the return of Christ. The only way to escape it is to deny that judgment is coming. Right? Because if not, you have, you have, you have to deal with it. Jesus is coming in power. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. He will repay every man according to his deeds. We here at Cornerstone Bible Church, by God's grace, will never deny the return of Christ in power. Those who love him long for his appearing. But we may be in danger of ignoring his judgment. He says he's going to repay every man according to his deeds. So maybe you are thinking now and say, well, what do I do? I know that I've not died to myself as I ought. I know that I spend so much time trying to save my life rather than lose it. I know that I've not picked up my cross and followed Jesus as I should. I see weaknesses in that hour by hour. What do we do? Well, if you are guilty this morning because you've been living without restraint, because you haven't been dying to yourself, because you haven't been living like Christ is coming back in power. There is time to repent and to follow. And this is the good news of the gospel. Acts 3, verse 26. God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you God sent his servant to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wicked ways. This is why Jesus came, to turn you away from your wicked ways. So if you are feeling the guilt this morning of living for yourself instead of him, he sent you to turn you away from your wicked ways. There is forgiveness in Christ. This is why he shed his blood, why he gave his blood to redeem us, to buy us back to the Father, to satisfy the Father's wrath so that we can be forgiven. Listen to Acts 5, verses 30 to 32. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, it says in verse 30, He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And Peter says, we are witnesses of these things. We have seen it, we have heard it, we are witnesses. You can have your sins forgiven. So as you look and say, Jesus is coming in power. But I I haven't been dying to myself I haven't been saying no to the flesh. I've been pleasing myself again and again and again. My life revolves around me. There is forgiveness for you in Jesus Christ. And I say this to you if you are not saved. If you have never become right with God, there is forgiveness for you in Jesus Christ. You can turn to him and be saved and say, I need that salvation. I need that forgiveness. I want to give my life. I want to lose my life so I can gain it. But it's also true for you if you are just convicted now. You know Jesus Christ, but you've been living selfishly. You've been at the end of your day. You've been at the end of your bank account. You've been at the end of just everything. It's just about you. You're just just kind of living in a bubble of self-pleasure. There is forgiveness for you. Everyone here through Jesus Christ alone can look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ in power. You can anticipate it. You can be eager for it, not just rescuing from this sinful body, not just rescuing from the sinful world, not just because you want to see justice established, but because you can eagerly anticipate my past sins are forgiven. And now I am obeying him, not perfectly, but Truly. You can look forward to his reward. You can eagerly anticipate him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus is coming in power. Peter testifies to it. He's seen Jesus in glory. He's heard the father say, this is my son. I'm going to throne him. And when he returns, he will separate those who've submitted to him from those who've ignored him. And where will you stand? Someone who's happily submitted to him or those who've ignored him? Those like the false prophets who just tried to get everything on this life now that they could. Will you be with those who rejected his constraints or those who've rejoiced in them? Are you with those who rejected his limitations or do you rejoice in the opportunity to obey him? Let's pray. Father, in a sense, um, among your people here in this room, although our eyes might not be shedding actual tears, Lord, it's tough to look at these um, verses about what Jesus requires and to have dry eyes, to have a hard heart. Lord, Lord, we confess that so often, again and again, we pursue our own pleasure, we make our lives about us. We're the end of our ambitions. We get drowned in a pool of self-focus. We confess how easy it is, Father, to be those who forget to, 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 to lose ourselves that we might gain you. We forget that incredible privilege of belonging to Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would use the certainty of Jesus returning in power uh, to stimulate our hearts to think about his return, to think about his his separation of those who obey him and those who don't, his separation of of those who, who lose their lives and those who try to save them here, his separation of those who deny themselves and those who take for themselves. Father, this is not hopeless. You exalted your son so that he could forgive. We praise you, Father, that there's forgiveness in Christ. I pray, Lord, for any who is burdened, that they have been living selfishly, Lord, that they would go to you for forgiveness, that they would know as they go to repentantly to turn their eyes to Jesus that that, that they do have blamelessness in Christ Jesus. That those sins are washed away, that they're cast as far away as the east is from the west in Christ Jesus. And to go forward with a new resolve to live hour by hour, dying to self and saying yes to you. Father, there may be here those, and I'm convinced that there are those who do not yet know you. Father, for whom this message is so much bad news, for whom your return in power is bad news, because they will be judged. I pray, Father, that they would hear the good news that Christ is your servant, not just son who's gonna reign, but servant who gave his life so that forgiveness can be given to many. I pray, Father, that they would come to you today desperate and needy and and look to Christ for salvation. You are a God who saves Lord, this is the message that has been taught for 2,000 years, that you have appointed a man to judge, but that man is also the source of our forgiveness. I pray, Father, that our hearts in your grace would be unified to worship him. In Jesus' name, amen.